0: to the well here at STSA. What we like to say is we are an ordinary place where hopefully extraordinary things are happening on a weekly basis. We're glad that you're here today. What we're doing if you're just joining us here today and you weren't here last week, we began a quest together, a journey, a search to search for something that many people didn't even realize actually still existed. What we are doing here over these next several weeks is we are on a search to find the original church. You know the original church, right? It's the one that you read about in the book of Acts where it talked about that they gathered together and they were a church and they broke bread and they prayed together and they had community together. The original church that Jesus started and he talked to his disciples like Peter and James and John. He said, on you guys, I'm going to build my church. Like we know that there was a real church, a a church back in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. And most people think that that church died somewhere along the way. And somewhere, maybe in the second or third century, the church kind of went away. But I believe, and what we're doing here together in this series, I believe that that church is still alive. And I believe that it's more than just a memory. See, I believe that the guys that Jesus established the church upon them, okay, after Jesus left, they carried the church. And those guys handed the church to somebody, who then handed the church to somebody, who then handed the church to somebody, to somebody, to somebody, to somebody. I don't think those guys were going to let the church die. I don't think those guys said, okay, you know what? Now that Jesus is gone, let's just kind of, we did a good job while he was here, but you know, like this church thing wasn't really going to last anyway. I believe that each one of them made sure that after they were gone, that the church would live on. And that those guys who lived on after them, someone lived on after them, and someone lived on after them, and someone lived on after them. And I believe that that exists all the way until this day, whoops, sorry about that, all the way to the point where I can make the following Set Claim today. I say that today the Orthodox Church is the original Christian Church established by Jesus Christ himself on the foundation of the Apostles. That the Orthodox Church in which you are here today, of which we speak about here, the Orthodox Church is not a model of the early church. It's not like a replication. It's not us saying, hey, remember those guys in the book of Acts? Like, let's try to imitate them. No, the Orthodox Church is the same church. You see, me as an Orthodox priest, I can look to my priesthood and say, I was ordained by somebody who 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 was ordained by, was ordained by a guy named St. Mark who is the second gospel writer. And St. Mark was ordained by Christ himself. So I can see a direct, tangible link between the priesthood that I was given, the authority that I was given, and the authority that Jesus Christ gave to his disciples and his apostles back in the first century. Because like I said here, we are the same church. Okay, the Orthodox Church is the original Christian church. And that's what we're doing here in this series is discovering how that's a true statement. And let me tell you the problem right off, right off the bat, why this is a hard concept for us to understand. Because we live in the United States of America. And the United States of America, we have a problem with history. We think the world began when we showed up. And Commonly it's understood like we think the world began when 1492 why that's when Columbus sailed the ocean blue Like that's what we were taught and that's pretty much when the world began my kids even asked me this one time They said did George Washington have a dinosaur? Like George Washington is the beginning and dinosaurs are the beginning so George Washington must have had a pet dinosaur And they were astonished to find out that no dinosaurs actually came before George Washington There was a world before George Washington before Columbus before any of that stuff Well the same thing is true when it comes to the church most christians today in america think the church started in the 16th century think that just because we don't know what happened in the year 1000 or 1200 or 1400 or 500 that that means that there was nothing and we kind of have this idea that the church started sometime around the reformation and that's really when the church came into existence or i'll tell you another popular theory that many people have is that jesus started the church and gave it to his apostles and that was very very strong that's the book of acts and then once we stop reading the scripture about what happens so the scripture goes up to the new testament Roughly, let's say the year 100 AD. Okay, that's like the latest that we read anything. Okay, after, after that, we don't read much. So that church was strong. And then once it hit 100 AD and there's no more scripture, boom, that's it. There's no more written about. That means nothing happened. And the church has kind of died. And the church was dead, watch this, for 1,500 years. The idea that the church was dead for 1,500 years. And then in Europe, it was raised by the reformers and by the people who, whatever it may be who came around in the year 1600-something. or other? I don't buy that. I don't buy that Jesus established a church and it lasted only 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years and then died and then resurfaced and it was raised to life by uh, uh, somebody not named Jesus. I don't believe in that. What I believe is that we saw this verse last week that the church, as it says here in Ephesians 1.22 He put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head of all things. The church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I believe that the church is the body of Christ. And because it is the body of Christ, I cannot say it is dead. I cannot say that the body is dead without saying that the head is dead. So if you say the church was dead for 1,500 years, then you also have to say that the head was dead, that Jesus himself was dead and that somebody raised him in the year 1500-something or 1600-something. You can't have a head alive without a body alive. It's just common sense and it's logic. So I don't believe that the church ever died. I believe that the church is still alive. And what we're doing here in this series is we are going to go week by week on a different aspect of the church that Jesus started, which we can read about, and which we know about, and see if we can find it today. And like I said, I already told you the punchline. The punchline is we will find it here in the Orthodox Church. Last week what we talked about is the definition of the church and the purpose of the church. What is the definition of the church and the purpose of the church? And we saw that it's quite different than the modern way of looking, the modern mindset towards what church is. Church is not a building. Church is not a denomination. Church is not an event. What we said the church is last week is church is the eternal body of Christ. Church is how I plug into the same thing that Abraham was in and Moses was in and David was in and Peter was in. It's me plugging into the family of God, not just me coming to be entertained for an hour on Sunday. See, we have this idea, again, our culture of a churchless Christian. For sure you've heard this idea of I'm spiritual, but I don't go to church. You've heard this before, right? That I love Jesus, but I don't go to church. The idea of a churchless Christian is the same as a child who is given birth to and then thrown out on the street. The church is our mother as God is our father. So to say I worship God as my father but I don't believe in the church is to say that God gave birth to me and here's a little baby then he threw me out on the street and said good luck buddy. The church is not who gave birth to us but who raises us. We're given birth by our faith in Christ but then we are raised by the church who is our mother. And a churchless Christian has about as much shot of success as an orphan, an infant who's thrown in the street to raise himself. And that gets to what we talked about last week as well, is what's the purpose of the church. And again, we think the purpose of the church is to entertain us for an hour on Sunday. And we think the purpose of the church is to make me feel good or to give me help in my job. That's not the purpose of the church. Those are all nice things, and we hope that you do feel good. We hope that you are entertained, hope the coffee is good. But it's not the purpose of the church. The purpose of the church is the healing of mankind. The purpose of the church is that all of us have a problem inside of us that cannot be healed by us alone. What I'm trying to say is you're not here at church because of me. Like, I can't heal you of your sickness. But you're here because this is the body of Christ, and when we come to the body of Christ, we find healing for the sicknesses which are inside us. You say, what sickness? I feel pretty healthy. Well, I tell you the sicknesses, you may be fine in your body, but how about greed? How about lust? How about impurity? How about impatience? How about anger? How about people going in the street and shooting other people? How about people lying to other people? How about people stealing from other people? How about people gossiping about other people? How about people who can't control their temple? Temper. How about people who got all kinds of different issues when it comes to their thoughts and anxiety and fear? No, we're all sick. And we have a sickness. And this sickness leads to death. And the only cure for it is to come to the doctor, who's Christ. And the doctor practices in the hospital called the church. If Christ is the physician, the church is the hospital where he practices, and we cannot separate the two. That's what we talked about last week, what we're going to talk about today. Last week, hopefully, we were all in agreement, and nobody got offended. Maybe some people got offended, but the fact that you're here, you're not one of the people who got offended, okay? Or you just really were offended, you're coming to get more stuff on, but most likely, last week, we were all good, all friends, we all got along. This week, we might be some (laughs) offending, And not offending that I'm going to say anything offensive, but I'm going to use a word which in many Christian circles is a bad word. And it's a word that today our modern American culture, 2016, doesn't like this word. And when I say this word, you may be offended before I even explain what it means or what I think about it because it's a controversial word. And the word is, ready? Oops. Tradition. It's a bad word. Tradition is a bad word in our modern times because what is a good word in modern is newer is better. Is that every man for himself and what's, 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 what's better for us today is spiritual, inspired by God, came up with whatever it is you want, is always going to be better than traditional and boring and handed down from somebody before us. I think the reason that we hate tradition is because we don't understand tradition. And what I want to do today is you who hate the word tradition. Give me a half hour, 40 minutes, so, and give me a chance to explain what it is, okay? And then you can hate it afterwards, okay? But just for the next 40 minutes, just open the mind there a little bit and see. Maybe you misunderstood tradition. Maybe somebody told you the wrong thing about it, and maybe it's not as bad as you think. First of all, I always like to go back, and let's start with history. The word tradition, why is it so hated? The reason why it is hated by so many people, the reason why may, it, may Maybe you were raised in a church where they told you, don't you ever go to a church that talks about tradition. And don't you ever listen to anybody who tells you tradition. The reason why tradition is given such a bad reputation is because it deserves it. Because it was abused. Because you go back in history, just before the time of the Reformation, okay, and go to Europe, and you see nobody's offended by anything. I'm saying history. okay? The Roman Catholic Church abused the word tradition. And they took that word tradition... And they basically, there was corruption in the church. I'm not saying today. I'm saying back then there was corruption in the church. There was things that was added in, things that didn't ever belong in the church. And it was all slid under the door under the title of tradition. So the people would say, but that's not in the Bible. And they'd say, well, that's it. Tradition. And say indulgences. That's tradition. And then other oh, things creep in, and I'm not going to get into it because I'm not trying to in- offend anybody. But things crept into the church under the name of tradition. So the reformers, okay, of whom Martin Luther would be the most famous, but the whole, all, that whole movement, basically responded by saying, we hate your tradition. And we are going to go the opposite of tradition. We are going to go, the term they came up with was sola scriptura. Maybe you've heard this before. Sola, meaning only scriptura, meaning scripture. Meaning, if it ain't in the Bible, get it out. We only believe what's in the Bible. And don't slide none of this other stuff and say tradition. We believe only in what's in the Bible and then what you had at that point in time was you had a war and you had a war between Bible versus tradition Catholics versus Protestants reformers versus the traditionalists and it became a battle an unnecessary battle because what we're going to see here today is that the two were never meant to be in opposition to one another when used appropriately. I'm not here to tell you this one's right or this one's right. What I'm here to tell you is both of them had an unhealthy view and if we go back to before the corruption and before all this stuff came into the church, what is a healthy view on tradition? How does the Bible speak about tradition? And how did the early church, Jesus and his followers speak about tradition? Let's look at that together and we'll start with the Bible. Does the Bible ever speak about tradition? Does the Bible ever mention tradition? It does quite frequently. Does the Bible speak highly or negatively about tradition? Highly or negatively? Well, for sure, you you're, you're scared to say it. Okay, negative. Many times speaks negative. Okay, and uh, we be honest. Okay, and Jesus Himself was one of the ones who spoke against tradition. Mark chapter seven verse eight and thirteen. For laying aside the commandment of God, he's young at the Pharisees, you hold the tradition of men. The washing of the pitcher of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, of which you handed down. And many such things you do. That seems pretty clear-cut. Another verse, St. Paul, Colossians chapter two, verse eight. St. Paul says, "Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ." All right, Father Anthony, you just you just buried yourself. You just made a case against yourself. You just showed us that Jesus and St. Paul, two pretty important guys when it comes to Christianity, spoke against tradition. This is a pretty open and shut case. Does the Bible ever speak positively about tradition? I said, does the Bible speak negatively? I showed you two examples. Does the Bible ever speak positively about tradition? Yes. St. Paul, 2 Thessalonians 2.15. Watch this. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions. Last verse he said, get rid of the tradition. Now he said, hold the tradition which you were taught whether by word or epistle. Another verse. But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. Now I'm confused. Now you had a verse that say, don't do tradition. Now you had a verse that say, make sure you don't lose the tradition. But make sure you don't follow the tradition. But make sure you don't follow it. You don't have anybody who doesn't follow the tradition. Anybody else confused? How are we going to reconcile this together? Is the Bible contradicting itself? Is St. Paul contradicting himself? Or could it be possible, could it be possible that there's more than one kind of tradition? Could it be possible that tradition is both good and bad? Yeah, maybe there's a good kind and a bad kind. I have in front of me a hamburger, and I say, that's a good hamburger. I have in front of me another hamburger, and I say, that's a bad hamburger. Wait, if that hamburger was good, that one must be good too. No, because that one's cooked, that one's not. So, I, I, not... By, by mere fact that this hamburger is good, that every hamburger is good. Some hamburgers are good, some hamburgers are bad. Some traditions are good, some traditions are bad. Some tradition we should follow, some tradition we should ignore. Some traditions stay away from, some traditions stay away from anyone who stays away from that tradition. Y'all with me so far? We look at it this way in the church, and I wrote this in your handout. There's two kinds of tradition, and I, for sake of, of, of comparison, One is a big T and one is a little T. Big T tradition, big T, capital T, is what we would call holy tradition. Little T tradition means simply traditions. So I'm gonna make a distinction between tradition and traditions. Tradition of God, traditions of men. Tradition, which is the teaching, the dogma, the faith, the what. The traditions is how we live that out, is the customs, is the practices. And I say that the two are not contradictory to one another. In fact, the two complement one another. And just because I am pro one doesn't mean have to be anti the other or vice versa. In the church today, which one do we practice? Tradition or traditions? What I'm going to do, I'm going to say traditions with a little t. I'm going to use other words for that instead just to be more clear. Culture. Uh, customs, practices, like, I'm talking about the same thing here. Traditions, customs, culture, practices versus holy tradition, teaching of God. Which one do we practice in the church today? Both. Good answer. Both. Good answer. Because we agreed last week that the church is not a divine institution and it's not a human institution. It is a theanthropic living body. And theanthropic, remember what we said? That was a fancy word. Make me feel smart. Theanthropic means the comes from theos, which means God. Anthropic comes from anthropos, which means man. So the church is the combination of God and man. That's why we said last week that the church is a divine presence on this earth, but it's also in the form of humanity. That's why there's frailty and weakness and mistakes. So in the church today, we absolutely have the tradition of God. but We also have the traditions of men. How can, you, how can you reconcile the two, both being in the church? Well, I say the traditions of men are not bad. The traditions of men are not bad, as long as we understand their rightful place. Now, I'll give you an example. One of the traditions of men, one of the little t traditions that we have in the Orthodox Church, some of you may have seen this, some of you may be weirded out by this, as I was totally weirded out the first time I got this as well, is when we greet a priest, traditionally, how do you greet a priest? You kiss his hand. So here i am i'm a priest and you come and you kiss my hand it's kind of weird for a bishop you not only kiss his hand you make an entire prostration you bow down to his feet and then you kiss his hand and you say that's kind of weird look here in this church okay i want you to understand what we do we don't necessarily do the hand kissing here a i'm kind of a germaphobe (laughs) And you should appreciate that. Okay. You should appreciate that. That's why I have got a hand sanitizer in my backpack. And just in case what somebody laid to smack down on that hand and really fired away on that sucker, like I'm doing it for your sake. I'm protecting the people. Okay. I'm a man of the people right here. And in addition, we're kind of a family. We kind of go with the hug and all that stuff. But I want you to understand that this is the traditional way that many people practice. Is this wrong to do this? Is it wrong to kiss the hand of the priest? No. But it's all important that we understand where it comes from and what the meaning is, and we don't confuse this with this. this came, why do we kiss the hand of the priest? We kiss the hand of the priest? The, 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 the tradition, like the rule, what's right, is we respect the priesthood and we honor the position that granted by God or the bishop. We honor the position. And in order to do that, the way they used to do it, okay, culturally acceptable was to kiss the hand. There's nothing wrong with that. Like it's not a big deal. In fact, if you go in the scripture, you see that when David met the Saul, met Saul who was the king, David greeted him by calling him my Lord and bowing down to the ground. That's what they used to do. Children would sometimes do this for their parents, call them my Lord and bow down. It's just a sign of respect. Now in our culture, no, that's people worship and all that stuff, so we don't do that. Okay, don't do it. But by the same way, I'm not gonna force you to do it. Don't judge the people who do do it according to your culture. You see how this works? The traditions right here are very cultural specific. And in certain cultures, the bow down, that's your way to do it, so you do it. All right, and the hand kiss, and that's great. Other cultures, not necessarily. The key is that we respect one another and we don't force other people to do our culture. So if a priest comes and visiting from Egypt, you kiss his hand because you respect his culture and you don't make him fit your culture. You respect, we respect his culture and I respect your culture. You respect the culture of the guy next to you and we respect it. But the key is, is we don't confuse this with this. I'll give you an example to show you in case you still think it's weird. Uh, year, a year or two ago, I don't remember when it was. Many of you know I went to uh, the White House, okay, and I was invited to the, the, the prayer breakfast thing. Well, before you meet the president, all right, you don't just show up and greet him however you want. Like We had to show up an hour beforehand, and they told us the script of how everything will work. This is how you will address the president. This is how you address the vice president. We were having a breakfast together. This is where you will sit. This is how you will eat. You will not offer him a plate from your plate. You will not ask if he's done with his ash browns. You will eat. This is exactly how you do it. Because that's the way, in that environment, in that culture, that is the way to show respect to the President of the United States of America. So there's nothing wrong with it. But what's wrong to say that if you don't do this, then you're breaking the Constitution of the United States. The Constitution and that are not on the same level. Is that clear? We have two kinds of tradition, and it's not wrong to have both, as long as we realize what's what in its rightful place. Every culture has traditions. Every culture has traditions. And the Church is no different. Okay, so they're absolutely our traditions. Let's focus now on the big T tradition. What falls into that category? Well, the big T tradition would be things like our faith. We believe in God, the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That is not a cultural, traditional, that's that. That don't change no matter what language you speak or what culture you're in. We believe, for example, the day of worship is on Sunday. Let me go back to the Trinity one for a second. Where in the Bible does it say the word Trinity? Nowhere. doesn't say the word Trinity. Where in the Bible I said we worship on Sundays? Where in the Bible does it command us that we worship on Sundays? No word. Even the word worship that I just said. Every Christian church today on Sunday is gathering for worship. Where in the Bible does it dictate how that worship is supposed to look? Because in most churches it looks pretty similar. But where in the Bible does it say that's how you do it? It doesn't. Everyone has their own traditions. Everyone is following some kind of tradition. The tradition that we follow is what was passed on to us from very, very early on. I want to go back to this verse that I showed you a minute ago. Look what St. Paul said here again. He said that stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught. And then he tells us that there's two ways that we taught you the truth. Or we handed to you the faith. What are the two ways? The two ways are by word or epistle. Word or epistle. Epistle means what? It means written down means that's the writing of the Bible. What's word mean? What I spoke to you that I never wrote down. Christianity cannot be limited to what's written in the Bible because Christianity is not a teaching. Christianity is not a class. If Christianity was just a philosophy or a, a, just a, a document, a statement of faith, then yes, it could be all written. But Christianity is life. Christianity is a life that is handed down. And me with my children, I write some things for them, some rules for them. Like they have certain things that we like come up with the summer or summer rules. But they're not going to come to me. And you're not going to come 50 years down the road or 500 years down the road and say, Father Anthony only had, this is the only thing he ever taught his children. What these three or four rules they wrote on a piece of paper. Because that's not, my goal wasn't to give them a writing. My goal was to give them life. Like I, I, if, I, if, if God's goal was just to give us something on a piece of paper, he'd have sent an email. Like he could have just texted it down to us or something like that. Christ came to give life. And that's why Christ lived with his disciples. And he imparted to them over the course of his life, his life. He gave them life. That's why we don't say that when Christ didn't say go after he left. He said, go and make disciples. He didn't say go and and, and write books. He didn't say go and write down what I taught you. He said, what I've given to you, go give it to somebody else. That's a life that's passed down. That's exactly the meaning of tradition. Tradition means passing on, be it written or oral or however, passing down of a life. Let me give you the definition from dictionary.com of what tradition is. Tradition, the handing down of statements, beliefs, customs, information, etc., from one generation to the next, especially by word of mouth or by practice. Especially by word of mouth. Or practice. So what I want to say is the majority of tradition that we receive from our parents or their parents or their parents is actually not written down. And Christianity is the same way because Christianity is life. Tradition means for us a baton. You know what a baton is in a relay race when you're running? You hand a baton to the next guy? That's what tradition is. Tradition means that I was given a baton by somebody before me. And my job is to hold it, preserve it, don't add to it, don't paint it, don't color it, don't chip at it, don't sell it on eBay. Preserve it exactly as it is and then give it to the next guy after me and tell him to do the exact same thing. And I'm telling you that the baton that we have was given to us by somebody who received it from somebody, who received it from somebody, from somebody, from somebody, from somebody, who received it from Christ himself. It's the same baton. That's what I mean when I say orthodoxy and I say tradition. Other examples in the New Testament, I could have given you a lot. I'm just going to go through quickly here, just to show you that this concept of tradition passing on is throughout the Scripture and it's not just one or two isolated incidents. Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you heard from me. Not just what I wrote to you, I wrote to you very prolifically. St. Paul is a prolific writer. But hold fast what you heard me teach, not just what I wrote down. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. And the things which you heard from me, among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men, we'll be able to teach others also. Parents, we get this because this is what we're doing with our children. We're teaching constantly. We want our children to ingrain it. We're not saying I'm going to write it on a piece of paper. We're saying I'm going to write it in your hearts. i want to write it in your life. I want to write it inside you and that way you keep it there forever and then do the same with the next person. Here's a verse. If you don't believe in tradition, explain this verse to me. Acts 20, 35. St. Paul's final speech to his disciples, he says, Remember the words that the Lord Jesus, that he said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. You go look in the New Testament, you go look in the entire Bible, you show me where Jesus said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. It's not documented anywhere in the Gospels. St. Paul said it. And when St. Paul said it, nobody raised their hand and said, Nope, sorry, St. Paul, what page is that on? Okay, it's not in there. Sorry, strike it from the record. Because they all knew it. They heard Jesus say it. And even though it was never written down, it's still written down inside their hearts. Okay? I'll give you another verse. Explain this one to me Matthew 4 23. Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogue, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing all kinds of sickness, all kinds of disease among the people. Question. Jesus went about all Galilee. Galilee would be like a county. So let's say all of Arlington County or Fairfax County or Montgomery County, whatever county you're from. Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues. Time out. Where's that teaching recorded? Where's that teaching recorded? Is that teaching recorded anywhere? Is it recorded anywhere? Yes, it's recorded. Where? In the disciples. In the church. In the tradition. It's not recorded anywhere in the New Testament. It's not on paper. It's not written in ink anywhere. But you absolutely, you you think Jesus went about the entire city. Like, come on, man, I'm here for 45 minutes preaching. I'm telling you, I work hard to prepare this stuff. I'm telling you, Jesus went about the entire city, preaching every synagogue. And you're going to say at the end of the day, no, none of it was important. No, no, just delete it if any was important, we'd write it down. But it wasn't important to just, uh, it's probably just like love and be nice. and uh, That's not important. Would Jesus say it in an entire city? I'll give you one more, then I'll move on to the next point. In John chapter 21, verse 25, this is the last verse of the, of the gospel of St. John. Last verse, he says this. After writing 21 chapters, pouring his heart and soul into the writing, he says, look guys, there are many other writings, many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself cannot contain the books that would be written. Amen, I'm going to bed, figure it out yourselves. <laughs> so I'm going to sit here all day and write down everything that Jesus said. That's what the church is. Where's what Jesus said? It's in the church. It's ingrained inside the church. It's in the life of the church. That's what tradition means. Now, with that said, okay, let me help you out if you're the devil's advocate or you're objecting or you're not comfortable. Let me help you out here. Let me help you by put the words in your mouth. I want to go three objections to what I'm saying. Because I'm, 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 I'm democratic here, so I'm both sides of the argument. I'm presenting the case, and I'm helping you, the jury, to make up your mind, right? Objection number one. Objection number one. I'm with you, Father Anthony, that there's supposed to be this tradition thing, but how can I trust the tradition as God-made, not man-made? How can I know if that's something made up, like our good friend, Santa Claus there? That's a tradition taught by people, passed on from generation to generation, something completely made up. How can I trust that what you're teaching today is what Jesus really taught? How can I trust that what you are saying the church is doing today that I just ruined someone's Santa Claus thing? Sorry. No children here, right? We're all PG... Tooth fairy. Should've stuck with tooth fairy. Should've stuck with tooth fairy. How can I trust that what you're teaching me, Father Anthony, is really what Jesus taught on those days when it's not recorded? How can I trust that what you're saying is true and you're not abusing it like the way that other people have used it in the past? Valid objection, and I'm with you. First thing, I'll say this. Your trust is not in me. Your trust is in God. So you're not saying, I trust you, Father Anthony. You're a good man, I trust you. Because your trust is not in me. Your trust is in God. And what did God say? Jesus said this in John 16, verse 13, but right before he's about to leave. He said, however, when he, the spirit of truth has come, He will guide you into all truth. Who is Jesus speaking to here? Who is the you? He will guide you into all truth. Who is he speaking to? The church. Speaking to his disciples. He's speaking to the 11 guys that would carry the reins of the church. Remember I said the Orthodox Church, the original church, founded by Jesus upon the foundation of the apostles. He's speaking to those 11 guys and saying, you guys... God was not going to leave you guys. He's going to send his Holy Spirit, will guide you, the collective body, not any individual, into the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He will tell you things to come. He will glorify me. He will take what is mine and declare it to you. Regardless of what you think is happening in the church today or happened in the church last year, I'm not getting to that point yet. I'm saying Jesus made a promise that his church would be guided into all truth. And whether or not you believe it's true or not true, I'm not saying true or not true. But you can't deny the fact that that's what Jesus promised in this state. What about all the people who made mistakes? Well, Jesus didn't promise that people wouldn't make mistakes. Jesus promised that he will work through the mistakes of others. This is a concept. Follow me here on this one. I'm going to use a big word. Again, make me feel smart. This idea that we are so, so big on in the Orthodox Church. Tradition relies... On the conciliarity of the church, not on any individual. Tradition relies on the conciliarity of the church, not on any individual. What does conciliarity mean? Conciliar, okay, consensus, but conciliar comes from another word. Conciliar sounds like what? What are we we big on here in the Orthodox Church? On the councils. Conciliar means councils. Conciliar, conciliarity, means coming from councils. I am not saying that any individual will never make a mistake. i never say that. In fact, I will tell you that every individual will make a mistake, including me. Including leaders of churches. In fact, who was the first leader of the church who made a big boo-boo? Peter! Peter! Jesus' right-hand man! The first guy who received the vision that the gospel is not just for Jews, it's for Gentiles as well. And he had the vision in Acts 10 about how what God has cleansed, do not call common. And Peter was the first guy to know this, and God gave him a special vision. And what did Peter do a few few months later? Peter was with some Jews and some Gentiles, and they were all going to sit together to eat. And and Peter said, you know what, Gentiles, I can't sit with you guys. I'm going to sit here with the Jews because I can't sit with you guys. And Peter went backwards. Peter, after getting the revelation, he was the leader of these guys, said, you know what? No, 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 separate the two. That's why St. Paul called him out. St. Paul said, you, that's not right. This is not what we were taught. This is not what you taught. Because no, any individual, any individual would never be right. Would never be always right, I should say. But who's right is the consensus? So what did the early church do? Peter said this, Paul called him out. Okay, and then this started a little bit of a controversy. So the early church solved it in Acts chapter 15, not by duking it out, but by they all gathered together. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. That word came together, that's what conciliar means. It means if this was today, and I believe something, and you believe something different, how would this get resolved? I'd go on Twitter, you'd go on Facebook. I'd get my fans to say this, you'd get your people to say this. We would fight, you would do a sit-in, whatever it may be, and we would duke it out, and in the end, you'd be a church, and I'd be a church, and I would tell everyone to follow me, and you'd tell everyone to follow you. That's how we would solve it today. It's not how they did it back then. Well, that's I did it back then. They believed in conciliarity. And they all believed that, you know what, I may make a mistake. But we will never make a mistake. Because we will always be guided by God. That's why when councils happen, we believe very much in these councils. That when there's discussion, not any individual makes up his mind. We gather together. We don't establish dogma. Okay, we don't establish doctrine. We just document what we've been given. Okay, because the faith was already given to us and we're just gonna put it in writing, okay, but we're not gonna establish it. The council's never established doctrine, the council's just documented what was already written on people's hearts. That's all it was. In a council, there's no majority vote. It's not like the Senate or the Congress or your three-fourths or whatever, it's not like that. It is like that on, on, on these kind of traditions, okay? There it is, I don't wanna say it's not on these things, but when it comes to this stuff, it's either unanimous or it's not. That's the only way. Because the Holy Spirit cannot be 80-20. And we believe that the Holy Spirit guides into all truth when the church is gathered together. So the Holy Spirit is never like, okay, 51-49, yes, we win. It's either unanimous or it's not unanimous. What counsels are to the church, I should say, when, the, when, when, when churches got rid of the idea of council and every man for himself, everyone deciding, you know what it's like? Married people, you, y'all get me on this one. It's like when a married couple... Introduces the D word to tell you to never introduce this. The D word being divorce. Once I put in my mind, you know what, we disagree. Well, maybe we'll just need to get a divorce. Once you put the option of divorce in your mind, that's it. But when you go in and say, we're not going to divorce, we die trying, we may kill each other, but we are not going to divorce. Then it's just a matter of time, discussion, okay? We will get to the decision. That's the way the church is. There's no such thing as divorce in the church. no such thing as saying, you know what? I disagree with Father Anthony. I'm starting my own church. Who's with me? That doesn't work that way. There is, if you disagree with me, you come and you talk to me. And we discuss it. And then if we can't agree, we bring the whole church in together. And if we can't agree, we go to the higher, and we bring it together until we as a body decide what's right and what's wrong. There's no disagreement. On this, there can be disagreement. Okay, on the little t tradition, yes, kiss the hand, bow the feet, whatever it may be, that's okay. But on this, there's no disagreement. God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. If you disagree with that, that's a, we, we need to dissolve, resolve that. We believe on conciliarity, and conciliarity not on any individual. Let me give you an example of how individuals may falter, but God guides the church. Last week, I gave you a little bit of a, a history recap about how there are two school, families of Orthodox churches today. Okay, y'all remember, I don't want to go into all that again. Basically, in the 5th in the century, the church divided, and there's two families of Orthodoxy today. Okay, one is called the Eastern Orthodox and the other is the Oriental or the Chalcedonian and non-Chalcedonian. Don't worry about it. These two families of Orthodox churches split in the year 451. And for 1,500 years, from 451 to the year 1980, 1990, somewhere around there, the two churches didn't talk to each other. They talked about each other, but never to each other. And most of the about each other was name-calling. I hate you, and you're this, and your Pope is this, well, you're patriarch is that, and your bishop is a stick, and all this for 1,500 years. They never spoke to, they only spoke about. They hated each other, and there was wars, and they were never in communion, and they never even communicated. And then, in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, they said, you know what? This is silly. Let's have a discussion. Let's see where things stand. And they started to open these like theological discussions and dialogues. Okay, And I was too young for them to invite me, but I have the results of what they talked about there. Okay, I'm joking, they wouldn't invite me after 1500 years of not talking to each other this is what they said in light of our agreed statement on Christology as well as the above common affirmations we have now clearly understood that both families have always loyally maintained the same authentic orthodox Christological faith and the unbroken continuity of the apostolic tradition though they have used Christological terms in different ways know what all that is saying in, in, in simple language? my bad, my bad, my bad, misunderstanding My bad, my bad, my bad. That's all That's saying. Both of them are saying, oh, you know what? We misunderstood each other. We're saying the same thing in different languages. This after 1,500 years. I'm telling you, we make lunch plans now. 15 minutes from now, we got all confused. 1,500 years, they didn't speak to each other, and they agree on the most important things in life about Christ and his nature and divinity and humanity, all this stuff. How? That's the Holy Spirit even though I hate you, the Holy Spirit loves the church. And the Holy Spirit keeps the church in all truth. Right? The statement goes on. I won't bring it all to you right here. but part I wanted to show you. Oh, well, let's forget about it right here. Oh, just the last sentence. Trusting in the power of the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth, unity, and love, we submit this agreed statement and recommendations to our venerable churches for their consideration and action, praying that the same spirit will lead us to that unity for which our Lord prayed and prays. That's conciliarity. What that is saying is that in a collective body, any individual can be led astray. But we believe that the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church and no one can take down the church and God will always guide his church, okay? That's number one. Number two, objection. All right, Father Anthony, but can't we just stick with the Bible? (laughs) Like, what about the Bible? Like, you're talking all this church and tradition and conciliarity. Why don't we just, like, the Bible's in front of us it's very clear. Like, let's just go with that so it's all on the same page, all in writing. It just makes life easier. Okay. I'll give it to you. Let's go with what's in the Bible. But I have to ask you a question. Where did the Bible come from? Where did the Bible come from? The Bible? Sometimes we think of the, the Bible as a book. I don't think of the Bible as a book. I think of the Bible as a library. The Bible is not a book. The Bible is many books. Some are poetry. Some are history, some are drama, some are action. Like, it's, it's many books. And you, that's why you never say, the Bible says this. What does that mean, the Bible says this? The, the, the Bible is not an entity. The Bible is a collection of books. Just like I can't say, the library said this. No, there's books in the libraries say this, books in libraries say Like, the Bible is not a book. The Bible is a collection of books. The Bible is a library. Okay, where did that library come from? How do we know what books go inside, what books don't go inside? The Bible, the books of the Bible were written over, like, let's say the Old Testament, over the span of how long? 3,000 years. Like the Bible wasn't like, okay, let's do this. We need to write a book. You write something, like you're Isaiah. You write six, six chapters. You are Daniel. You take 13. You're King David, write uh, 150 Psalms. Like it wasn't like distributed that way. It was people wrote, people wrote, people wrote, people wrote, people wrote, people wrote. And then the church said, this, this is something good. That's no good. That one, no, no, leave it on the side. That one belongs in here. Okay, it's a library, it's a collection. So my question to you is, how did this collection get put together? How do you know what's in the Bible and what's not in the Bible? Because there are many writings. Look in the New Testament. We have four Gospels. You think there are only four, four Gospels written? Many Gospels written. There's the Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of James. How do we know Gospel Matthew, yes, Gospel Thomas, no. Gospel Mark, yes, Gospel James, no. How do we know? Easy. Tradition. Tradition told us. We're not guessing. We're not making it up. We're not trying to figure it out ourselves. The church told us. the end of the 4th century, they gathered in a council and they said together, guys, we know the truth, but people are starting to get confused. People don't know what's what's inspired by God and what's not. So we need to tell the people. So we need to tell them, this book, yes, this book, no. This book, yes, this book, no. We need to compile the library for them. And it wasn't until the end of the 4th century, Council of Carthage or Hippo, where the people had in front of them the documented, the canon of the Bible. So what I say is this. You say, what about the Bible? I agree with you. But I say you can't accept the Bible without accepting tradition. Because if you get rid of tradition, you got to get rid of the Bible. If you get rid of tradition, you got to get rid of the Bible. Because the Bible never told us what's supposed to be in the Bible. The Bible was given to us by tradition. By someone who said, these books yes, these books no. If you don't believe in tradition, then you know what? Let me give you all the writings from the New Testament era, from that hundred years, and I give you all these manuscripts, and you good luck to you figure out what's true and what's not true. And you figure out if Jesus was a son of Mary, or if he was a husband to Mary Magdalene, because that's what some of them say, or if... John uh, was his disciple or was his mistress So you figure all that stuff out if that's what you want. If you don't believe in tradition, I give you all the writings, all the crazy stuff that's out there and you figure it out yourself. Or you say, I accept what's given to me in the Bible because it was given to me by people who I trust. The Bible was given to me by people who I trust. I trust them, I take what's inside. it. I say to you this, if you will take this from them, how will you distinguish between what to take and what not to take? How would you say, yes, the Holy Spirit inspired them to give us these books of the Bible, but when they told us this, that's not inspired. How can you discern and dissect between what is the work of God through tradition and what is not? It's a dangerous category to be in. That's number two. Number three, the catch-all. I'm still not comfortable. (laughs) I'm still not comfortable. It's too easy for people to make stuff up and just say tradition. Well, if that's how you feel, I will tell you the exact opposite. You say, I'm not comfortable with tradition because people can make stuff up. I tell you, I'm not comfortable with the church without tradition because people can make stuff up. And I will tell you that tradition is not here to make stuff up. Tradition is to protect us from people making stuff up. Because what tradition is, is what I received, I hand off. Nothing added, Nothing subtracted. And I will tell you that a church without tradition, that's where I get worried. Because then anyone can make up whatever he or she wants. Those who hate tradition, typically, typically. Okay, I kind of told you where the Orthodox Church is. I told you where the Roman Catholic Church was and kind of the Protestant Reformation. So I'm going to use these two as examples. And I know I'm kind of generalizing, but just for the examples, okay? I told you where... Church has always been on tradition. And I told you how some abuse and then some. If you are driving on a road and you start to swerve and you're about to fall into this ditch, that's bad. But then if you overcompensate and fall into this ditch, did you really accomplish anything? Did you accomplish anything? No. Like if fall in a fallen ditch on the left, a ditch on the right, either way I'm not on the road. Well, that's kind of what happened in church history. In church history, what happened is you had some people... And again, nobody's getting offended. I'm just doing history. Rome started to add stuff into the church. Started to swerve over this way. Like I said, indulgences, uh, papal infallibility, stuff there wasn't from the beginning. Started to add a few things right here. And then all of a sudden, the reformers came around and said, y'all add a lot of stuff. We're taking all that stuff out. And we swerved over to this side. And I'm telling you, whether you fell into a ditch on the left or fell into a ditch on the right, either way, you're in the wrong place. Said another way, Churches that add to tradition is bad. But I see there's no difference between adding and subtracting. To change the church by addition, bad. To change the church by subtraction, equally bad. And I will tell you that today, many of the churches who preach against tradition, I promise you, are more laden with tradition than we are. I promise you. Then they realize. I promise you. They are more laden with tradition. You say, wait a minute, why do you say that? Because they're preaching against tradition, okay? In the early church, it was very clear. For the first 1,500 years of Christianity, it was very clear. And actually, even beyond the reform, even the reformers didn't disagree on this. The role of Virgin Mary in the church was always a prominent role. I don't want to get into it right now. We're going to have a whole week on Virgin Mary and her role in the church in two weeks or three weeks or whatever part four is. It was very clear, that she played a prominent role and I agree some people added to that role and I agree you shouldn't add to it but to negate that by removing her from the church landscape you cannot study the first 1500 years of Christianity and again even I tell you Martin Luther spoke very much about the role of Virgin Mary you cannot negate the role of Virgin Mary as an integral part of the church And I'm not saying what we'll get in that two weeks where she fits in but I'm saying to wipe her out from the church communion. You can't read the New Testament without seeing that communion, Eucharist was an essential, the most important part of life together as a church. And then to wipe it out and make it maybe, you know, a monthly thing that we do and it's kind of a burden and we no don't really like it. You tell me, who taught that? Who taught to remove communion? That's tradition. But it's just the tradition of somebody else. I'll give you the biggest one, and forgive me, nobody's getting offended, I'm just speaking truth. The idea of, we don't believe in tradition, we believe only in the Bible. Sola Scriptura. Sola Scriptura fails its own test. Because Sola Scriptura is not in the Bible. The idea of, only what's in the Bible is what we'll accept, is not in the Bible. So you, somebody taught you that, but it wasn't in the Bible. So the idea of we don't believe in tradition, everybody believes in tradition. It's just a matter of whose tradition you believe in. You can choose to believe in, in the tradition that is taught today. And some guy says, this is what I believe. And you can believe him and say, we don't believe in anything anyone taught except him. You believe in his tradition. You can believe in tradition of your parents and their church. What we choose in the Orthodox Church is to go back to the tradition of the guys who started the church with Christ. And that's why I say the Orthodox Church is the original church. Established by Jesus himself on the foundation of the apostles. Everybody listens to somebody's tradition. You just have to choose whose it is that you listen to. In the end, what I hope that you will take away from what I'm saying is, get rid of the idea, Bible versus tradition. Get rid of that idea. I'll be honest with you. I'll tell you something, and I don't even know if this is right or not, but this is how I feel. I don't want Bible. I don't want tradition. I want Christ. The goal is not Bible. The goal is not tradition. The goal is not to do what those guys did. The goal is Christ. The goal is Christ. And the Bible is a means to Christ, for sure. And so is tradition. But the goal is Christ. The goal is never to memorize the Bible and teach the Bible and learn the Bible. The goal is Christ and the life that he gave to us. And the Bible is an essential part of that. But there's other things that are not in the Bible that are also an essential part of that. And that's where tradition and Bible are not against each other. They are complementary to one another. They were never, ever, ever meant to be against each other. The Bible speaks of tradition. Tradition is what gave us the Bible. The two are supposed to work hand in hand and forget about this this false fight between them. One of the things that we know, and we will hold this to the very, very end, Jude 1, 3. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for, most important phrase, that we believe in orthodoxy, the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. We believe the faith was given and the full revelation of faith was given by Christ to his apostles, completed on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came down. That's it. Nobody come around thousand years later, and say, yeah, what, what Christ gave the apostles was good, but let me finish the rest of the story for you, or let me tell you the missing link, or let me tell you the vision that I had that finished that. Nobody say that. What was given by Christ to the apostles, sealed in by the Holy Spirit, is the baton, and our job is to take that baton as is and continue to pass it along. Yes, we adapt how we do things, by culture and all that stuff, the traditions, but the baton was delivered once by Christ, sealed by the Holy Spirit. And it's not our job to add to it or subtract from it. It's not our job to change it. It's not my job to give you my opinion. It's my job to give you this baton. And my hope is that you will realize that while in the world today, we say newer is better. We always want newer, newer, newer. Give me the newest model of this. Give me the newest this. I hope you realize when it comes to our faith, I actually say ancient is better than newer because I don't want a newfangled idea when it comes to my salvation. I don't want a hypothesis on, hey, I think it kind of works this way. I think this is what Jesus really meant. I want tried and true. I want tested over thousands of years. I want handed to me by the guys that I trust, not handed to me by somebody in skinny jeans and a plaid shirt on the TV. Let's stand up and say a prayer together. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for the faith which you have given to us. And you've opened our eyes to see you and to see what you've given to us here. I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to keep this faith and to, to, to keep it like in our hearts, not as something that we, we, we hold like loosely or, or trivially. But we realize that many people have given their lives for this faith. Lord, you sent your Son into this world to deliver this faith to us. You seal that faith inside us through the Holy Spirit. Pray, Lord, that you would have us allow us to see how precious it is to us and fight for our lives. Fight with, with everything that we got to keep this faith pure and, and nothing added, nothing subtracted from it. Pray, Lord, that you would help every single person in this room to, to see your plan for them and your path for them to find you and to get closer to you. And whatever path that may be, Lord, I pray you would open their eyes to see it. Pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Prayers of all your saints. Hear us, Lord, as we pray thankfully. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.